What is Canada's place in a changing world? This is the big question. The Peacekeeping Monument in Ottawa commemorates Canada's role in international peacekeeping around the world. On it is a quote by former Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson. It says, quote, We need action not only to end the fighting, but to make the peace. My own government would be glad to recommend Canadian participation in such a United Nations force, a truly international peace and police force, end quote. Pearson would also involve Canada in resolving the Suez Canal crisis between Egypt and Israel. These events, as well as the creation of a distinct Canadian flag, are a part of the many events throughout our history that would see Canada evolve from a dominion of the British Empire to a nation that stands on its own alongside others in the world. On this episode of The Big Question, we're talking to Rob Hubert. My name is Rob Hubert. I'm an associate professor with the Department of Political Science here at the University of Calgary. About Canada in 2019, the erosion of its traditional partnerships and new external threats. The world is engaging upon one of the greatest changes that we've seen since the end of the Cold War and probably before that. What we are entering into is an era that many within the academic field refer to a multipolar system. We went through a period at the end of the Cold War where the Americans emerged as the hegemon, the controlling state, the most powerful state there was in the international system. And for the most part, Canadian interests lined up very nicely with American interests. We had differences with them during that time period, but more or less on the core issue areas, we shared a common vision of what security in the international system meant. We are now entering an era in which we see a rising Russia, a much power, more powerful China, that are all attempting to challenge the Americans in one way or the other. The other confounding issue, and perhaps the more scary element for many, is of course that we can no longer count on the many alliances and friends that we have had, because many of the states, such as the United States, Great Britain, seem to be facing challenges from within. As we watch the Americans change in terms of their overall core principles, this of course is very alarming, but we are also seeing a very clear evidence that there are outside states that are trying to change the very nature of these societies. And so therefore we face threats now within the international system, both from external, China, Russia, we are now facing threats from within and from outside. And this is something that Canada has not faced realistically since its existence. And the fact that we need to balance and understand where these are coming and we don't have a full appreciation makes them that much more of a dangerous set of threats that now face Canada. What are the new external threats to Canada in 2019? In 2019, the new external threats to Canada are in fact increasing in both intensity and in the number of states that are in fact threatening Canada. The two at the forefront of the list are of course Russia and China. The reason why we see Russia as an increasing threat is as Putin has consolidated power within Russia, we see Russia moving from the period when it was in fact willing to cooperate with the West. This was the era that Yeltsin was in command and this was probably the first part of the Putin administration. But by 2007, Putin has made it clear that he no longer sees the West as a cooperative entity. And as such, 
Canada, along with the rest of the West, are now starting to face a Russia that is willing to utilize military force both overtly and behind the scenes. The Russians, of course, used force the first time in Georgia to stop it from joining NATO. They then used it uh, force in 2014 to stop the Ukraines from joining NATO. All of this, of course, is a threat to Canadian interests in a cooperative and peaceful Europe. The first threat is, of course, the threat to our stability as a part of the West. This is not to say that Canada is being directly targeted by the Russians in terms of some of the military actions, but in fact that if the Russians are successful in mounting their military activity against any states that wish to join NATO, and in fact, as we are seeing, Russian increase of usage of military threats against countries such as Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, that in fact that the efforts of the Russians to destabilize the NATO alliance is also a secondary threat to Russia or to Canada, since Canada, of course, is a founding member of NATO. We are also starting to see indications that Russia are directly trying to interfere with our domestic affairs, such as interference in the elections. Uh, CSIS and other agencies, security agencies within Canada, have made it very clear that there are direct Russian efforts to utilize what many refer to as hybrid warfare, not direct directly saying that you're at war with a state, but nevertheless using all sorts of means that are not peaceful interactions to undermine Canadian democracy by trying to sow discord within the Canadian society. So at this point in time, we are seeing three clear threats from Russia to Canada. In terms of China, the threat is a little bit more nebulous. China, of course, is determined to become a regional hegemon. Their defense budget went from being less than what Canada spends on defense in the early 1990s to the fact that it is now the second largest defense economy in the entire international system. Current estimates put the United States as the most at $600 billion a year on defense expenditures. The Chinese are now spending probably about $250 billion and are continuing to grow. Where we see the Chinese posing the most direct threat to China, to Canada, are once again in three, in orders of three. The first is the threat to international stability. We see as China becomes more powerful, they are, of course, trying to disrupt the international system that basically has been in very much in Canada's favor in the Asia-Pacific region. They wish to replace the Americans as the major hegemon. The second aspect that we see China is that they are increasingly becoming aggressive in their actions in the Asia-Pacific region. They now are more openly talking about the utilization of force to retake Taiwan. They talk about the use of force to defend their claims in the Spratly Islands, and they seem to be willing to do so. There's been a couple of incidences in which the Chinese have in fact buzzed Canadian vessels that were peacefully uh, sailing through these waters, and this is something that we have not seen before. The third aspect, and this is the more recent one, the Chinese have made it very clear that when Canada takes any actions that the Chinese view as against their interests, they will take whatever steps are necessary to get Canada to change that behavior. When Canada, of course, arrested on the behalf of an American request, the executive from Huawei, 
we saw the Chinese respond by very illegally, in the views of most observers, to Canadian uh, individuals that were in China, changing the sentence of several Canadians uh, that were being that had been arrested and um, and convicted on drug crimes, where their their um, their terms were almost, from our perspective, unilaterally changed from a prison term to a death sentence. We've seen the Chinese use whatever economic tools they feel necessary, and this. Is something new, but nevertheless illustrates the fact that we now have a China that is very willing to do whatever it feels necessary to get Canada to follow its interests. So when we combine these three aspects together, all of them, of course, are very troubling in terms of the future uh, relations that we will be having with China. Aside from Russia and China, are there other outside threats to Canada? Beyond China and Russia, we are very alarmingly seeing other outside threats to Canada. Two of the most obvious examples of this are, in fact, our new relationship with both Saudi Arabia and the Philippines. In an era where the idea of the Saudis specifically targeting Canada as a state in which they basically almost virtually and in every conceivable way short of military action attack Canadian interests and values was something that was unheard of. And yet we saw, of course, in recent year, in recent time, that in fact the Saudis have made it very clear that they will do whatever is possible to undermine Canadian interests. The Philippines are another example in which a country in which a small incidence, there was the issue in terms of the shipment of trash that went wrong, and there's no question that this is a practice that should not be, be, be taken upon. But when the Philippines thought that the Canadians were not responding quickly enough, we of course had the, the Filipino president talking about taking every step, including the possibility of war with Canada. Now, of course, he was using you know rhetoric and he was not in any way uh, really talking talking about it, but what we are seeing is an international system that rather than respecting a Canada, seems to be much more willing to, 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 to press us on inch, issue areas when they feel that it is in their interest. And this is, once again, the Saudis and the, and the Philippines are, of course, not going to be, you know, targeting Canada for war, but the fact that as a, a station that, or as a country who has prided itself on being sort of the friendly helper, you know, remember the current government's big acclaim was Canada's back, everybody wants more of Canada. Well, the actions of the Saudis, the Philippines, and other countries demonstrate that that is not the case, and this, in fact, is something new in terms of how we are being viewed in the international system and the type of actions that we are seeing from these countries. What are Canada's traditional relationships? One of Canada's core, if not the most important traditional security relationship, and one that is very much under challenge today, is of course with the United States. Since the beginning of the Second World War, Canada and the United States has had one of the best cooperative security relationships in the international system. I challenge you to find any other countries that are neighbors to each other that have been able to have the degree of cooperation, shared values, and shared effort in maintaining international security that favors their interests. I mean, you talk to the, the Russians and the Germans or the Poles and the Germans or in the Japanese and the Chinese and the North North and South Koreans, I mean, basically, neighbors inevitably are usually the environment of tension. 
Since 1941, Canada and the United States have been able to basically treat the North American continent as one entity while maintaining their separate identities. And this is something that is very much a rarity. We take it, or we have taken it for granted in Canada, but I can assure you that it is not a normal uh, signature, uh, is not a normal element of the international system. Canada and the United States from 1940 have had this shared security environment that has served both countries very well. We started off by working together very closely in World War II. We then entered and confirmed it to, through two major alliance systems, first of all NATO, that Canada was very much at the forefront of creating. And interestingly enough, the United States was a little hesitant. It was us that talked the Americans into the importance of such an alliance system. And we had the subsequent alliance of NORAD, which provides for the aerospace defense of North America. These have worked very well, and they have worked because we do have a fundamental shared set, set of values and in, in interests. What is changing in 2019, and quite frankly is terrifying many observers, is the fact that there is reasons to question whether or not this shared interest is as strong as it used to be. Now, part of this, of course, is being personified in the Trump administration. People will po po point to Trump and say, well, he first and foremost, he is not a friend of Canada, and that, that's clearly understood by his behavior, but in fact that he represents something different within the United States. The problem that we face right now is whether or not Trump is, in fact, the facilitator, the creator of this new direction that the United States seems to be going, or is only representative. I mean, there are many who say that Trump came to power because many of the divisions that we see him bringing to the forefront were already there. It was just a matter that he was able to capitalize. Others, of course, contain that Trump is at the very front of what is, of course, referred to as popularism. The forces of popularism, as they are being expressed within uh, the Trump administration, are, of course, being considered by many as an existential threat to Canada. Part of the problem that we face in the challenge is that we are seeing a United States that seems to be moving away from its core values, the values that are also shared by Canada. And so we have a twofold threat that is now emerging to our security because of this new development in the United States. First, if we have a United States that on the basis of this, th th this new approach to the international system is in fact moving to isolationism, does that leave Canada out and vulnerable to countries such as Russia, China, Saudi Arabia? Do we no longer have the protection that the United States was able to provide to us since the beginning of the first, uh, Second World War? And this, is, of course, is a question that many people are now starting to examine. The second and probably even the more scarier issue is the U.S. commitment to democracy, to equal values, to the rights of individuals, regardless of their religion, of their, their gender, of their, 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 um, their uh, cultural orientation. Is this now being challenged? And given the outbursts that Trump has had in terms of some of the more racist statements that he's recently been making, and the fact that we seem to see at, the, at, the, at a minimum support by the Republican Party, 
Does this suggest that the shared interests that are at the backbone of the traditional relationship between Canada and the U.S., are we dealing with a different type of United States? Is that shared value no longer there? And if that is the case, then can we count on the United States to basically, when they protect their interests, to be protecting our interests if they are in fact trying to diverse so much? So at a minimum, we have a United States that seems to be moving into an isolationist mode. We have a United States that seems to be moving away from some of their core values. And we have to ask the question, what does that mean for our security? What does that mean for the security of Canada? Well, it's very troubling when we think it in the context of what it means for the security of Canada. First, if we can no longer trust a United States to basically have our shared values so that we were able to align our security efforts in the international system, it means at a minimum Canada has to start thinking for itself something that we have not done very well because we haven't had to. The second element is we need to have the forces to be able to maintain and enforce whatever terms we come in terms of identifying the security. We will not move away completely from the Americans, and hopefully the Americans will not become a direct threat to Canada, but it does mean that our, ally, our ability to rely on the United States will be minimized. There's a second ramification here, and one that is also playing itself out. The other side of our traditional security relationship has, of course, been with the Western Europeans. We have had that institutionalized through the creation of the NATO alliance. The NATO alliance was created at the, uh, following the end of the Second World War when the Soviet Union became a major threat to Western interests. And very much, Canada played a lead role in the creation of NATO, but it was to basically say that under a concept that is known as collective security, you attack one of us and you attack all of us. And that is a means of deterring an aggressor state. And that was entirely what NATO was designed to do, to deter an aggressor Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union imploded, of course, many people suggested, well, perhaps NATO has seen the end of time. But interestingly, the Eastern European states that had been under the control of the Soviet Union and then subsequently were given their, their independence, the first thing that they wanted to do was to join NATO. And we saw a renewed relevance in NATO because many of these countries took the long view. They said, yes, Russia today is getting along with us. Yes, Yeltsin is pro-West but the Russians will be a threat in the future and we want to have the alliance. And so that has traditionally been the second element of Canadian security, to be within like-minded states, all democratic, all who value human rights, all that have a relatively individual's perspective, that have been able to work together to say basically to the international system or any would-be aggressor, if you attack one of us, you attack all. What we are seeing now, beyond what we are seeing within the United States, is countries such as Great Britain, Hungary, Turkey, Poland, all major members of NATO, are now increasingly also facing pressures that seem to be disrupting their commitment to that common cause. Now, some people suggest that what we are seeing is a rise of popularism within these countries that are forcing them into more nationalistic or idealistic um, or um, illiberal motions than what we've seen before. Within Great Britain, we of course see what many cannot understand is this effort to leave the European Union 
for values that nobody's quite clear in terms of, of, of what is to be gained by that. And in fact, there are strong indications from the various intelligent agencies that to a very large degree, the supporters of the, of the British exit in fact, mean to, to weaken Britain, to weaken the Western Europeans by sowing discord. And the fact that we see someone such as a Boris, uh, Boris Johnson, who has now been able to achieve the reins of power within Great Britain, seem to be following the same type of, of specter of what we've seen in the United States, a country being led by a leader who seems to prefer to lie when uh, instead of tell the truth, one that seems to be committed only to their own personal gain gains and are able to achieve power. And this seems to be also another major threat to Canadian security. Because if we see countries such as Great Britain, Poland, Turkey, basically either on their own or through the instigation of outside countries such as Russia pulling away from NATO, then that means that common security that has been at the crux of Canadian security throughout the entire Cold War period and post-Cold War period is under threat. And so this is also something that is very troubling for Canada in that we have question marks arising over the United States, and now we have question marks over the Western Europeans, all of which means the traditional security environment that Canada has basically been able to enjoy is now truly under question. You've talked about the internal threats in the United Kingdom and the United States, as well as other countries like Turkey, Hungary, and Poland. How are we understanding this in the Canadian context? Well, that's a very good question to then ask how this plays out in the Canadian context. Now, to a certain degree, we seem to be able to withstand some of the pressures that are immediately threatening within, say, countries such as Poland and Turkey, where we see very strong efforts to destroy the democratic practices. Within Canada, however, we should not be so complacent to think that these forces, both externally and internally, are not, in fact, trying to seed discord and to challenge core Canadian values. First of all, we do know that there is evidence, and CSIS has provided some in some open source reporting, that in fact the Russians are trying to interfere with our electoral system. We are seeing clear indications that this is a problem. We are also seeing clear indications that the Russians are also trying to interfere in terms of spreading of misinformation. Now, this leads into the third issue, and the one that is the most dangerous. What we're seeing in these other societies is, of course, the efforts of those that would want to hurt the West by trying to sow discord. And to a certain degree, this is feeding into some of the more xenophobic, some of the larger fears. We look to Great Britain, and we know that those that were supporting the removal of Britain from the EU really focused on the immigration issue. In the United States, it was, of course, the loss of jobs, and it's always trying to pitch us versus them. If we look at a Boris Johnson and a Donald Trump, we see the terminology that these leaders are starting to use, in fact, are clearly meant to divide within their society, and in dividing within the society to basically attack the core values that are there, particularly the protection of equal rights, the idea that it doesn't matter what you look like, who you are, your race, back uh, your your religion and so forth. In Canada, we of course have a government that is, is, is priding itself on trying to avoid some of those divisions, but we already see some of these forces at play. 
When you examine and close some of the new legislation, for example, in Quebec, that in fact are designated to basically form a basic discord between the various members of Quebec society, those that may be of Sikh or Muslim background as opposed to those that are non-denominational, and one can see the, the arrival of identity politics. We also, of course, see Bernier trying to basically feed into these divisions that Boris Trump, um, Johnson and Trump were so successful for doing. And there are some, some, some very unsettling polls coming back within Canadian society that suggest that played certain ways, this politics of divide, in fact, is starting to take root to a certain degree. We seem to be able to, to withstand to a better degree than what we see in some of our other Western allies. But once again, I do not think that we should be complacent because we can see clearly how this will play out. We will see increasing efforts through the internet to basically pitch one side against the other that will then lead to legislative behavior, as we've seen in Quebec, for example, in which clearly there are sides being created. And once again, once that ball starts rolling within any society, as we've seen in the United States, as we've seen in Great Britain, it's very hard to contain it. Now, some may identify it as a rise of an indigenous movement, and this is what those who say it's popularism are talking about. It may just simply be that the forces that be that want to disrupt the Western way of life simply are seizing upon the division politics. And rather than to identify it as popularism, it's really about division and not the arrival of a new motion. Whatever it is, regardless if it's being external, externally created or if it's arising internally, this, the, this challenge to our core values and interests has to be one of the greatest security threats from an internal perspective that Canada has faced in a very long time. So what can we do about this? Well, there are three major steps that Canada needs to start doing today to respond to these new threats. The first one, we need to start thinking for ourselves. Regardless of whether or not this change within the American political system is permanent or whether or not it is simply a passing phase while Trump remains in power, the reality is we need to start thinking for ourselves in terms of A, how we define our security and the steps that we need to take to respond. The second step is, of course, we need to get much more serious about our defense structure. For much too long, any effort to really develop a meaningful Canadian defense policy that is properly funded has been something that we just haven't done. We've been able to basically sort of uh, uh, bounce our way through, almost to a certain degree, through good luck rather than any sort of rational planning. But we haven't really ever sat down and said, you know what, we need to really be spending a larger proponent of our money in a smart fashion. And our continual difficulty in mounting any procurement policy, be it for the replacement of our, of our existing Navy or for our uh, existing uh, Air Force fighter fleet, I mean, we need to start getting much more better at what we're doing and much more serious. I think to a certain degree, we need to start looking at examples such as Australia and Japan that are comparable in terms of their overall economic structure and have also been forced to develop a much more independent 
foreign and defense policy. Now, when I say independent, I don't mean in, in opposition to Western interests or even American interests, but rather than simply more or less saying to the Americans, okay, what do you need us to do? We start saying, okay, how do we understand what we need to do with the Americans, with the Europeans, because we can't, we can't depend on them to have our best interests at heart. The third thing that we need to do, of course, is that we need to redouble our efforts and take very serious the fact that there are forces afront that would love to disrupt the society that we have built over time. We need to take it serious that there are, in fact, individuals and, and, and entities out there that want to challenge our commitment to democracy, our commitment to human rights, and that we cannot take those for granted, that we have to be aware and we have to be willing to engage upon it. Now, to a certain degree, that may in fact be uncomfortable for some people because what it means is that we have to be willing to engage and discuss. I mean, we've moved into a bit of a society where if certain things are uncomfortable, we say, we, well, we better not talk about it because it's uncomfortable. And I think we need to pull back from that and recognize that the strength of our democracy, the strength of and the protection of our values are only when we have that vigorous, open, and equal discussion in which everybody can actually put forward their ideas. Because part of what's feeding into popularism is that we know when there's certain segments of our society that think that they cannot be heard, that they cannot say it, and the terminology, we all know what it is, you know, oh, I can't say that because that's politically incorrect. We need to be able to have the ability to say, okay, you know what, I want to hear your point. You know, you're from, from this part of Canada, and it, it may be a viewpoint that that I don't agree with, but I want to hear it. I want to engage rather than saying, no, there is a certain, we, we, we cannot discuss these things. And so we have to be much more, I think, mature. We have to be more adult on that ability to have that type of discussion. But ultimately, at the back of our minds, we have to be recognizing that what we have in Canada is unique. And in fact, we do have to be willing to push back against those that would love to see the end of the Canadian virtue. This has been The Big Question. We've been talking to Rob Hubert, an associate professor of the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary about Canada's place in the world. For more stories about ongoing research at the University of Calgary, go to explore.ucalgary.ca. The Big Question is a co-production of CJSW and the University of Calgary. To find this episode and older episodes, subscribe to The Big Question wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Braden Alexander. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.